if you want to open up your Bibles, we are going to be in the book of Daniel in chapter 8 today. So please go ahead and, and do that. Turn to the book of Daniel, brothers and sisters, and we'll begin momentarily. I do want to just make note of the fact that the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God is every bit as much worship as the singing of songs of praise. I don't know if you're aware of that. It, it's something that uh, has just been kind of refreshed in my understanding. I was at a conference this week, um, an online conference as things go these days, and they were talking about that, how you know, in our heads sometimes we divvy up what's worship and what's not worship, don't we, in our heads, when actually, when we come together, the whole thing on a Sunday is an act of worship. You know, we come and we sing and we magnify God in our songs of praise. And then we meditate together on God's word. And that's every bit as much worship as singing the wonderful songs that we sang earlier. So I want you to see this. This is not a passive act of hearing the word of God. This is an active act of worship as we sit together and we meditate upon this wonderful word of God this afternoon. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father God, we thank you that we, your children, have been left this scripture, this Bible. And this Bible was not put together merely by human hands but was God-breathed, was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to nourish, upbuild, and encourage your children on this earth in this day. And so, God, we are so grateful for this, that you, our Father in heaven, speak to us afresh every day through this word. And, God, we pray that as we study this chapter today in Daniel chapter 8, Lord, that you would help me to preach this word as it is. Lord, not to get in the way of it, not to stand in, what, in the way of what you're trying to say to your children. Lord, we also pray that you might open our hearts and our minds to understand the magnificent glory of the scripture that we are studying as a church family today. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's read together Daniel chapter 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that which appeared to me at first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision... And I was at the, the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one horn was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him close to the ram. He was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceeding great towards the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. 
and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another one, another holy one, sorry, said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard the man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened. And I fell on my face, but he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he'd spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, These are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between the eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not of his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great." Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several weeks back, we studied Daniel chapter 7, didn't we? And in Daniel chapter 7, there's mention of this character called the little horn. And I want you to stick with me, church. This is intense stuff, okay? I know many of us are not used to coming to church and studying through prophetic books talking about little horns and all such things like that. But let me encourage you, this is the word of the Lord and therefore it has to be good for us, hasn't it? Okay, so we studied in Daniel 7 the mention of a little horn and we discovered that little horn to represent an individual. An individual mentioned elsewhere in scripture as the man of sin or otherwise known as the antichrist of the last days. And today, as we are studying Daniel chapter 8, we are going to be studying another little horn, which rises up, as we've just read, and persecutes God's people, causing great suffering and distress. Now, there are some who believe that the little horn mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, which rises up on the fourth beast, and The little horn mentioned here in Daniel chapter 8 refer to the same person, the same individual. Now I hope to show you brothers and sisters today through examining this text that that can't be the case. It can't be the case that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 be the same individual. These two horns represent two kings But one is past and one is yet to come. Okay? 
That's what I hope to establish today for you as we rightly divide the word of God, God willing. I also want for us to see once again, church, God's sovereign hand over all of creation. Isn't that wonderful? I want for us to just glory in God's absolute sovereignty over the times that we live in and over the times that Daniel lived in also. I want us to see that he is sovereign over not just in the heavens, but over all the affairs of man, even over evil men. Hallelujah. Even over evil times, our God is sovereign. Our God reigns in the heavens. I also want for us to see in this book once again that the Bible isn't like any other piece of literature, right? The Bible's not just like any other book you could pull out of a library store. Uh, It's nothing like that at all. It speaks accurately to us, both of the past and of things yet to come. The Bible is just as fresh and relevant to us here in the 21st century as it was to the early saints in the early church, amen? Of those living in the first and second centuries. We are just as encouraged today by the scriptures as they were all those years ago. Let me just read a quote to you. This guy is a chap called Philip Marrow. He was an attorney at law who lived in New York City in the 1920s. And I read one of his papers on the magnificence of the Bible years ago. And it just, it just changed my life. And let me read a quote from his work to you. It's a remarkable fact that the Bible never becomes exhausted never acquires sameness, never diminishes in its power of responsiveness to the quickened soul who comes to it, end quote. Hallelujah. That's a good word right there. The Bible's different in quality than any other human book ever written. I remember there was a a man by the name of Thomas Paine, an American philosopher and an atheist in the 18th century. And he released a book called The Age of Reason. And he said, within a hundred years of my book coming into print, the Bible will be out of print. Well, guess what? Two hundred years later, the Bible is still the best-selling book worldwide. It never acquires sameness. It never diminishes in its responsiveness to those who come to it. Amen? Such is the incredible accuracy of this chapter in the book of Daniel in predicting events that hadn't yet happened that many skeptical scholars just have to deny that it was even written by Daniel. Did you know that? There are many skeptical scholars who just will not accept that the book of Daniel was actually written by Daniel. Do you know why? Because to accept that, they'd have to acknowledge that what they're reading is accurate biblical prophecy. They would have to acknowledge the supernatural hand of God acting in history, and they are not prepared to do that. Let me read Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 to you. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Brothers and sisters, do you know this is the God you worship? Declaring. The end from the beginning. Not predicting the end from the beginning. Did you catch that? Declaring the end from the beginning. The times we are living in right now have not been foreseen by God. They have not been predicted by God. They have been declared by God. There's a huge amount of difference between those two words. Do you understand me? In most churches you go to, sadly... In the modern day, they'll read it the other way. Our God, looking down the corridors of time and predicting the end from the beginning. Looking into the hearts of free creatures and seeing what they will choose and then putting it into his word. But that's simply not what the word of God says. Declaring the end from the beginning. Our God is sovereign. Now this vision that Daniel sees takes place two years after the vision that we read of in Daniel chapter 7 and around a decade before the fall of Babylon. So he's writing in the year 551 BC, there or thereabouts. Daniel's in Babylon and he's serving this king called Belshazzar. In the vision, he's taken to a place called Shushan, okay, or Susa, which is in the province of Elam. 
This is actually the same city that's mentioned in the book of Esther. You remember the book of Esther? Same place, okay? It's about 230 miles to the east of Babylon in Persia. And at the time Daniel saw this vision in 551, Susa wasn't the kind of royal citadel that it was in the book of Esther, okay? This is before that. And when he's in this vision, he sees this ram standing by the Ulai Canal. It's got two horns, both are high, but one rises higher than the other at the end. And he sees this ram charging westward, uh, northward, and southward, but no beast could stand before it. Now, as we've seen before in the book of Daniel, beasts represent what? What do beasts represent? Anybody guess? Kingdoms, okay? They represent empires, governmental powers, okay? And he sees this ram in the land of Elam in Susa. That's in Persia, okay? So the angel Gabriel actually interprets this for him later on in the same chapter. He says, as for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So the ram in Daniel chapter 8, is this, it has the same representation, stick with me, as the second beast of Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember the beast that was like a bear and it was fearsome and it had three ribs in its mouth? Okay, so the ram is Persia and the bear, or the beast like the bear in Daniel 7, is also representing Persia, okay? They both represent the same thing. Interestingly, historically, we know that the ram was actually a symbol of the Persian Empire. We know that kings and armies, Persian armies, when they went into battle, would actually carry a ram's skull with them. Okay? So the ram is well known in the ancient world as representing Persia. And we read that this ram charged in three different directions, westward, northward, and southward. And that's actually true historically, that the Persian army conquered in those three directions. I just love how accurate the Bible is. The three victories of the Persian army were Lydia to the north, uh, Babylon to the west, and obviously the Holy Land also, and Egypt to the south. So we see that the two horns also represent Media and Persia. That's what we see also in Daniel 7 when we see the bear uh, raised up on one side. And we see one horn rising higher than the other. That speaks of the eventual supremacy of Persia over Media, which historically is what happened. Persia became more powerful. The king Xerxes and Darius became the regal kings of that entire empire. And uh, I want us to note as well that uh, Medo-Persian empire is still future to Daniel at this point, isn't it? It hasn't happened. Babylon still reigns at the time when Daniel sees this vision. So then he sees a goat. This goat, we're told, is the king of Greece. Okay, And the horn between his eyes is the first king. That's what Gabriel says. So the goat represents Greece. And Gabriel tells Daniel um, that this conspicuous horn is the first king. Now, I think it's best to take Gabriel's words, isn't it, for what this all means. I would prefer to rest on God's interpretation of the scriptures than my own. <laughs> so we've always got to follow Gabriel's leading on what this means. And he says to him, um, this is Greece and this horn is the first king. Interestingly, again, about 200 years before Daniel was even born, Greece was known as the kingdom of goats. They, they, the goats everywhere, apparently, in Greece, and they were known as the goat kingdom, right? So, again, historically accurate. So this goat, which is Greece, in Daniel chapter 8, corresponds to the third beast of Daniel chapter 7, which was the leopard with the four wings. You remember that? Came after the bear. So this is Greece we're talking about here. And so Daniel sees this goat literally fly out of the west. It says without even touching the ground across the face of the whole earth. This speaks of a rapid conquest, rapid movement, rapid expansion. And the single horn in the front of the goat's head represents the first king of that empire. Now we know that this king wouldn't be born until 356 BC. That's 200 years into the future to Daniel. Okay? 
We know his name as Alexander. Alexander the Great. The son of the king of Macedon in northern Greece. Alexander was educated by the Greek philosophers, by Aristotle, who was educated by Plato, who was educated by Socrates. Okay, so coming from the cream of the crop in all of history in terms of education. And this Alexander did conquer the entire, pretty much the entire known world by the time he was 32. Isn't that incredible? Died at the age of 32. He destroyed the Persian Empire in just a couple of years and took the Holy Land also. And the Grecian Empire ruled over Jerusalem after the Persians. Incredibly, Daniel even sees the timing of Alexander's death, coming when he and the Grecian Empire were at their strongest. This is an event hundreds of years into the future. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't the Bible incredible that it predicts these things with such accuracy? Amazing. And I just think this is more evidence of God's supernatural power in the word of God. He says that after Alexander is broken, four more horns will come up to the four winds of heaven, or in other words, in every direction. And this actually happened in history. After the death of Alexander, his four generals, uh, Cassander, um, Lysimaeus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, or I think that's how Derek can tell me off at the end if I've got that wrong, um, Ptolemy, they divided up the kingdom into four, to the north, west, south, and east, okay? So this is, again, accurate prophecy from the Bible about events in history. The empire was divided up into four. And we then hear that out of one of these horns, a little horn arose, okay? A little horn arose. Now, we'll get to that in a moment, and we'll talk about who that could be. But I want you to just take a moment and note this, right? This is why the little horn of Daniel 8 cannot be the same person as the little horn of Daniel 7. The little horn of Daniel 7 comes out of the fourth beast. Not the third, the fourth. The fourth beast of Daniel 7, if you remember, represents... Who gets a prize here? Rome. Excellent. Anthony gets the free coffee afterwards because obviously they're... You all have to pay now. He gets the only free one. <laughs> Rome, okay? So the, the, the little horn or the, the king in Daniel 7 is talking about somebody who rises up out of a Roman empire and out of ten horns, okay? So ten kings and the little horn rises up, displaces three of them and begins to speak blasphemous things against God, okay? So that horn is Roman. This horn in Daniel 8 is rising up out of the Greek empire, okay, a past empire, so they can't be the same person. Now, what's cool, I think, just to remark on, is how quickly the Greek empire spread, right, and when the Greek empire came, probably one of the most profound and notable things about it was its culture, the Greek culture spread right across the ancient world, from Greece uh, all the way out to India, Okay, and they took their language and their culture with them. Now, I just think it's remarkable that God purposed that before the coming of Christ. Because one of the most incredible things about the New Testament is how quickly these first century Greek documents spread. And they spread so quickly because all of the known world at that time read Greek, there was no language barrier. That couldn't have happened unless the Greek Empire had come and spread their language everywhere. And today, when I study the word, I'm reading it in the Greek language, okay? And it is a far more technical language than English. There's so much range of meaning. And God purposed that in history. Isn't that incredible? So we see this little horn rising up out of one of the four kingdoms of ancient Greece. Who can this little horn of Daniel chapter 8b, if it's not the same as Daniel chapter 7, who we know is the end time antichrist, who can it be? Now, though I don't think they're the same person, I think they're related. 
They do similar things. And I think when we look through scripture, all the way through, just as we see types of Christ, don't we? We see types of Christ all the way through scripture. Abraham, Moses, Noah, right? We see these types of Christ all the way through scripture. Equally, in scripture, if you look carefully, there are types of antichrist. There are types of antichrist to prepare God's people for what is eventually going to come. We read about Pharaoh in Exodus attempting to destroy God's people. Nebuchadnezzar himself was a type of antichrist. Haman, do you remember in the book of Esther, Haman, who tries to destroy the Jewish people? Another type of antichrist. King Herod in the New Testament, who again sought to destroy uh, the seed of Abraham, of Jesus, and, and killed all the babies in that region. Horrendous. And even in history, if we come outside of the Bible, there are types of Antichrist in history, aren't there? Um, Adolf Hitler, to name just one. And this man clearly, clearly is a type of the Antichrist to come. Uh, if you read about him and you read stories of some of his closest aides, it's, it's very clear that the man was possessed by a demonic spirit. His followers would talk about how Hitler would become an entirely different man when he stepped behind a microphone than he was on his own. His closest aides also talk about him going into trance-like states in his room on his own. I don't know if you're aware of this. He used to try and talk to spirits. In fact, the Nazi party was very, very immersed in the occult world. Um, really interesting things, quite dark things that they used to try and do. So, this is an example of a, a type of Antichrist from recent history. But uh, we also know, obviously, Hitler and the Nazis made it their aim to eradicate, again, uh, the Jews, the, the chosen nation of God. But this, obviously, Hitler can't be the little horn of Daniel chapter 8. Because we're talking about somebody who lived and ruled within the Greek kingdom. So it can't be Hitler it can't be Herod who ruled in the Roman kingdom. It can't be Haman, though he's closer to that time. He reigned in the Persian Empire. None of these men fit the bill. So the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, the fierce looking king, I, I like that expression for him, who takes away the burnt offering, the temple, who destroys the holy people, who throws truth to the ground and causes deceit to prosper, this is somebody who comes to prominence during the division of the Greek Empire into four parts. There's only one man in history who fits that description, and that's the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire. It's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, if you've ever heard of that name. Antiochus Epiphanes, you're about to hear about him. And as we learn this, I want you to understand, church, we're not just having a history lesson here. Okay? We are studying history together. But Christianity is a faith built upon historical facts. Amen? And so as we learn this, we're going to be learning what God wants us to know about the schemes of the devil to try and destroy the faith of the church on earth today. Okay? We're going to learn keys and strategies of the enemy which he's trying to use to undermine the work of Christ on the earth so that we can be prepared, so that we can defend against them, so we can spot them and resist them. Okay, this is why we're doing this. It's not just mere history. I hope, I hope we understand that now. This is going to be of use and I will get there. Okay, So this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, is well known to history. He's well known to history. He took over the kingdom of the Seleucid Empire by murdering the rightful successor and then murdering his son also. So not a nice guy. Schemer, a plotter. He ascends to the throne uh, through having these people murdered. And we know that he begun his reign using bribery and flattery to gain more influence and more power. So he succeeds to the throne of the Seleucid Empire in 175 BC. Jerusalem also and the people of God at that time fell under his rule. And it wasn't long before he began to try to make changes in God's city. 
Antiochus was a big fan of Greco-Roman culture. And he wanted to get rid of Jewish culture from the start. Okay? He had an eye on Jerusalem. He wanted to shift the culture in Jerusalem. And so the high priest at the time was a man called Onias. And Onias the high priest saw this coming. He saw this king and thought, this is bad news for us. And so he began to write to the king of Egypt, another Greek ruler, and ask for help against Antiochus Epiphanes. And unfortunately, another, Greek, sorry, another Jew, a man named Jason, found out that Onias was writing to uh, the king of Egypt. And he went and reported him to Antiochus Epiphanes. This man Jason went up into Syria, reported the priest, the high priest, to, to Antiochus Epiphanes and said, look what he's doing. Listen, I'll give you this amount of money and you can make me the high priest of Jerusalem and we'll get rid of Onias. And Antiochus Epiphanes was only too happy to oblige. And so Onias was deposed and Jason, not from a priestly line, was put in as the new high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jason didn't take long to try and help Antiochus to build this new Greco-Roman culture in Jerusalem. And so what he did was, he, by the help of Antiochus, built a gymnasium. He built this huge arena right next to the temple in Jerusalem. And in this arena, they would have naked athletes, because back then they didn't wear singlets, right? Naked athletes who were competing all day long, all through the week. Always there was activity at the stadium, which was right next to the temple. He wanted to provide entertainment for the people. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that this tactic is alive and well. I want you to see that the enemy's tactic of trying to keep you entertained instead of serving God is alive and well. The devil wants to distract and subjugate us. And to be honest, he doesn't need to mount a full-scale frontal attack to do that. All he needs to do is distract you. All he wants to do is just keep you entertained when you should be praying. Keep you entertained when you should be at church. It's dark. A distracted church is a powerless church, amen? A church addicted to entertainment is not going to be walking in the things of God, in holiness. Now, is it any surprise at all that the devil, all he's had to do to derail the church in this country is create options. To create other options for amusement on a Sunday. And there was a time not too long ago when Sunday was a day for going to church with your family. There was a time when that was the case. But now... Sunday isn't so much the Lord's Day in England as it is Sky Sports Super Sunday. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir here. I love sports. Super Bowl Sunday today, right? But you can see the agenda here, can you? All the shops and retail parks are open on a Sunday. Do you think that just happened? We know that all the events of this world are being influenced by spiritual forces that we cannot see. Church attendance on Sundays has dropped massively, not just since the pandemic, but it's been on the slide for decades. And church attendance, even for Christians, has just become one option among many on Sundays. Now, please understand, I'm preaching to myself here too. But watch this. If we only attend church every other week. Guess what? That's only half the Sundays in a year. That's you giving 50% of your gift of service back to God instead of 100. I understand we have commitments. We see family. We see friends. 
Sometimes that's what we've got to do, okay? There are occasions when you've got to do that. You've got to be with your family. But you can see what I'm saying. The slow creep of entertainment and other options for Christians on a Sunday has absolutely undermined the strength of the church in this nation. There's no question about it, okay? And that even goes deeper. It goes far deeper than that because not only does the devil... Uh, right behind other options on Sundays he's right behind other options on your smartphone he's right behind your social media apps every time you open up your YouVersion Bible app guess what a notification pops up just better check that that's a WhatsApp message I really should respond to that and before you know it time's gone I'm, I'm tired God I'll do it tomorrow I'll do it tomorrow we all know how the story goes because we all lived this a thousand times okay but entertainment is absolutely one of the biggest plays that the devil is using as a tactic to distract the church guys let's just be wary of that let's try and be aware of that the next time our finger creeps over to the the uh, social media apps on our phone right just be careful because we can all get sucked into that hallelujah so jason does everything he can to try and turn his countrymen from following God to, to following the new, exciting Greek way of life, okay? And I think it's interesting as well that in this stadium, they weren't just clothed athletes, were they? Naked athletes performing. Carnality is another big distraction for the church today that the devil is absolutely invested in. He understands the power of carnality because each of us, even as Christians, is walking a, a line, a narrow path, aren't we? That's what Jesus calls it, the narrow way. So the devil is going to try and throw everything at you to try and knock you off the narrow way and get you on the broad way, where everyone else is having fun. So what does he do? He fills the television, he fills your phone with adverts, with semi-naked people on them. Maybe it's not porn, but it's close increasingly things that would have been beyond the watershed when I was growing up are right in front of your face now it's a slow creep but sure enough is another tactic of the enemy he understands the way that our fleshly nature works and he tries to grab for it and that's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did before he ever attacked and killed Jews he attacked them with entertainment and with carnal sensual temptation did all he could to distract them before he ever attacked them. Now this Jason, the new high priest, Antiochus' man in Jerusalem, guess what happens to him? He gets sacked off by another even more ambitious and horrible man called Menelaus who goes up to Antiochus and says, you know what, this Jason guy, he's not doing a great job. I think he's pretty lax here you go, have some gold utensils from the temple that I've taken. Make me the high priest. I'll do a better job. What does Antiochus do? He says, go ahead. You have a try. So down comes Menelaus. He has Onias, the real rightful high priest, murdered and continues the work. Why am I telling you this? Why am I giving you this history? I want you to see why a man like Antiochus Epiphanes was given power by God to destroy Jerusalem. It was because of the sins of God's people. Their sinfulness, their bribery, their flattery, their absolute rejection of God's word led to this man Antiochus Epiphanes being empowered. That's what the Bible says, in fact, in this very chapter. It says, because of transgression, this happened. It's John Calvin who said that when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So I think that in these days, to prevent that from happening in our nation, we as a church want to spend our time eagerly studying the word of God and eagerly pursuing him for the blessing of our nation, for the upbuilding of our cities. We understand the role that we have as Christians 
not just personally, but politically and corporately in this nation. By the blessing of the upright, the city rejoices. Now here's where things take a real turn for the nasty. In year 168 BC, Antiochus got humiliated. So we see this other empire begin to rise up. The fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 begins to growl. And we see the empire of Rome begin to come into play. And this general from Rome appears in Egypt. And Antiochus is trying to build his kingdom and spread out into Egypt. And this Roman uh, general comes down and famously Antiochus is stood with his army ready to take the nation of Egypt. And this Roman general, dressed only in a toga, draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus and says, you take one step outside that circle and we'll destroy your whole army. Antiochus knew the game was up. He returned back up north with his tail between his legs and on the way saw Jerusalem and decided to vent his full rage against the city. He ripped down the walls. He murdered hundreds and hundreds of people. He began to build a new city in place called Acre. He erected an altar to Zeus in the temple on the 25th of December 168 and sacrificed a pig on it and ordered the Jewish people to worship it. I want you to see how vindictive the devil is. I want you to see how rage-filled he is against true faith. But I want you to see how he can only take power and influence when we have decided to trample truth underfoot and we've decided to sin against God. This was God's judgment against Jerusalem at the time, sending Antiochus Epiphanes up to it. Now, he also ordered that God's name be changed from Yahweh to Zeus Olympus. He forbade the Jews from offering sacrifice. He took away all the temple utensils and left it desolate. He ordered his troops to murder everyone who would not comply with his new rulings. And any woman who circumcised their, their son was to be murdered, their child along with them. is horrific. You can see what the enemy tries to do here. You see the name of God being changed. You can't call him that anymore. We see horrendous things happening to the people of God. It wasn't actually until the year 165 when there was something called the Maccabean Revolt. And uh, he was eventually overthrown, this Antiochus Epiphanes. The temples rededicated in that year. And we celebrate that today as Hanukkah. Don't we? You've heard of Hanukkah, that celebration? Now as I draw to a close here, I want for us to just take note of all that Antiochus did and I want for us to notice the strategies in play here, okay? All that this man did, Antiochus Epiphanes, all that he did, all the deceit, all the destruction, all of the blasphemy that he did is just a foretaste of what's going to happen in the end times, it's just a foretaste of the great tribulation that will take place before Christ returns. And we know that the little horn of Daniel 7, who is this man of sin, this Antichrist, he's going to be like Antiochus Epiphanes in many ways. He's going to be great, but not by his own power, by the power of the devil. He'll be wily, he'll be clever, he'll be slippery, he'll try and deceive, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. He'll be full of rage against God's people, and he won't show that at first. At first he'll look every inch the diplomat, every inch the philosopher ruler. But he will turn against God's people terribly and persecute them. We don't know the exact time of the end. We don't know exactly when this end time antichrist will rise. But we do know what to look out for in terms of character traits. We know that the same power that gave rise to Antiochus Epiphanes is at work in the world right now. And we can see some of the tactics, uh, brothers and sisters, that the devil wants to use. Firstly, flattery and deceit. Flattery and deceit. And we see this all over the world. 
Flattery has become almost something that's acceptable, isn't it? Right? We lie to somebody in order to draw them into our influence. Deceit, not telling the truth. Secondly, we see another tactic of Antiochus Epiphanes that we see in the enemy and his ploys to attack the church. Naked ambition is another trait of enemy attack. When we feel that desire in our hearts rising up to be in charge at all costs, you know, I must be in control. We have to then discern that maybe the enemy might be in this. I'm always worried when I see Christian brothers and sisters grabbing for control, grabbing for power at all costs. That's a red flag, an unhealthy interest in power. Thirdly, another ploy and plot of the enemy is to attempt to undermine worship with entertainment. The corporate gathering becomes less about worship, the word of God, and more about vibes. <laughs> more about fun, more about entertainment in the house. And doctrine and the teaching of the word of God becomes to get cast to the ground, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. Fourthly, the devil will always empower toxic, false shepherds in the church, just like this guy Jason, just like Menelaus, men who were not qualified to be high priests. The devil empowered them to do just that. And that's what we will see. That's, that's an enemy ploy right now, is to seed false shepherds into the church who look the part, who've got money, who've got influence, who've got all the swag, all the, the chatter, right? But these are false shepherds if they do not teach the word of God, if they don't live a holy life, if they're not pursuing the upbuilding of the sheep, but are looking instead to make money for themselves. False shepherds in the church. Fifthly, truth is always thrown to the ground like it's worthless. This is a big concern, brothers and sisters. If you take no interest in the truth of the Bible, if you're not bothered to know what's in the scriptures, let me tell you right now, we will pray with you. Because that's another plot of the enemy, is to keep the children of God in darkness about who God really is and about who they are. To keep you from your destiny, to keep you from knowing your father, is one of the greatest ploys. And how does he do that? Oh, you don't want to know what's in there. You can't handle doctrine. You can't handle theology. We'll just, we'll just come along on Sunday, we'll give you a TED talk. We'll just give you an encouragement, a quick TED talk, just how to, you know, just... Seven, seven tips to live a better life, right? Casting truth to the ground. Sixthly, lies rise up and are considered to be true. It's another sign of the enemy's plots. Lies proliferate. They become considered as truth, especially in the area of God's word and God's design. You can't say that a woman's a woman anymore. You can't say that a man is a man anymore without being called out for hate speech, right? That's a sign that the devil is at work, brothers and sisters. And when that stuff starts to creep into the church, let me tell you, it's poison, it's corrosive. It's a big sign right now that we're in dangerous times. Finally, seventhly, persecution and physical destruction of God's people. Now, this is the thing that comes last. And we pray that we don't live through those days but physical persecution. And it's happening in the world right now. Believe you me, it's happening in the world right now. Christians are being thrown in jail purely because they're Christians. Christians are being martyred at greater levels than at any other point in history right now. You just don't hear about it. There's an agenda that you won't hear about it, that you'll be lulled into a false sense of security. Let me tell you right now, Christians are suffering in the world. And it's only going to increase. And I want for us to be ready when it does come, brothers and sisters. I pray we don't live through that in this country. But I can't promise that we won't. And I want this church to be readied to suffer for the name of Christ. Hallelujah. Saints, we're given this word from God that we would be prepared for everything that we live through. We're given this word in Daniel chapter 8 so that we might know how to live now in these times. God is gracious. He is good. His kingdom is the exact opposite of everything I've just mentioned. Where in the devil's kingdom there's flattery and deceit, in God's kingdom there is truth. There is truth. There is love. 
In God's kingdom, there's no naked ambition. There's honor. There's respect. There's no attempting to undermine, no false motives in God's kingdom. Purity, holiness. He's given us this book so that we could see an example of false worship. We could see an example of what the devil's plans are. And so we could protect ourselves against them. That's why. Let's pray that God gives us the strength to pursue him in these times. To push past distractions, uh, even when they look entertaining and fun. Let's pray that he helps us to be strong in the face of enemy attack and persecution. And to endure in seasons of suffering and to resist the devil's plans. I, I believe that we can have hope today. We can have hope. We know that as times get dark, we know Jesus is coming back. It's not far off. It's not far off. One day, all of the shaking that we're seeing in the world, all of the things that are happening will just disappear in the blink of an eye. The heavens and the earth will be rolled up like a scroll and we'll see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Amen. What a day. What a day. So let's stand and let's pray. I'm going to um, just invite Mike to come and we'll close. If anybody would like prayer, for anything at all, please do come and uh, grab myself or one of the leadership team. Love to pray with you. But let's, let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. God, we thank you, even though it's sobering and there are many difficult things to, to talk about, we thank you that it's got purpose for us here in the 21st century. We thank you that it encourages us to push back against the plans of the enemy and to pursue your kingdom at all costs. So we pray strengthening for our church right now. Lord, we pray that we rebuild the walls of defense against unholy entertainment, against letting the enemy rob our time when we should be worshiping, when we should be praying and reading the scriptures. God, we ask, help us to rebuild those walls and those boundaries. God, we pray right now, if, if there are some of us in this room right now that we know we've fallen in that area and we've given way to unholy entertainment, to, to fleshly, carnal stuff, God, we just bring that before you, Lord. We ask, cleanse us, forgive us, heal us, Lord, and help us to be strong once again in those areas. Lord, we want to spend our time wisely on this earth. Every minute, to honor you, to glorify you, Lord Jesus. So God, make us strong. Prepare us, we pray in your mighty name. Amen.